Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. The discovery of antibiotics revolutionised medicine more than 100 years ago. Combined with vaccines, these effective treatments transformed human existence from one where infectious diseases was the leading cause of death to a world where most people die of age-related illness. As the world watches coronavirus case numbers surge, people are asking why we have so many effective drugs for treating bacterial diseases, but relatively few for combating viruses. Associate Professor Stuart Ralph is acting head of the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology in the School of Biomedical Sciences. Dr Craig Morton is a departmental senior research fellow based at the Bio21 Molecular Science and Biotechnology Institute. These University of Melbourne biomedical scientists sat down with Dr Andy Horvath to Zoom chat about their work and the world's search for a drug to treat or prevent coronavirus. Gentlemen, tell me about the virus because drugs block things or they change the biochemistry of what's going on. Take me down to the level of what's happening with the virus and the cell so I can then understand drug control. Coronavirus itself doesn't have a cell. It's a virus that's made out of a a genome and a few proteins and a lipid coat that's wrapped around the, the genome. Unlike us, its genome isn't made out of DNA. It's made out of uh, another string of instructions that's called RNA. And so that virus infects our cells and replicates within them. And that replication and the distribution throughout the body is what eventually causes the disease. So my understanding is the virus gets into our lung cells in some manner it squashes its way in, it replicates inside, it makes more of itself using our cells' mechanisms, and then it gets out to sort of do world domination and, and infect other people's lung cells. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So the virus needs to be able to make lots of copies of itself in order to be able to, to stay alive. And those copies are coughed out when we cough or um, put saliva on a surface and they can infect another person where they will then replicate uh, millions of times again. And they can infect our lung cells directly, but they can also infect other cells in our body. Okay, so if you're designing a drug to try and halt it in its tracks, where do you attack it? Do you attack it at its physical parameters of its lipid fatty coat, as you were referring to, or do you attack it when it's trying to get in or out or replicating Tell us about drug design for a virus. Well, I think this is the the real um, killer when it comes to viruses, that there just aren't that many different ways that we can think of to attack viruses. We've got lots and lots of drugs for parasites and bacteria, which have lots of potentially susceptible targets. But in the case of viruses, there aren't that many things that they actually do. So we've limited to a handful, maybe only a dozen discrete processes that we could think of to interrupt and that that interruption would cause the virus to either stop replicating or our bodies to not get sick because they've got virus inside them. And I think a key point about the drug discovery process in this context is that you're trying to find a compound that only works on the virus. You're trying to find a weakness that the virus carries that our bodies don't. 
So you can come up with drugs that will target something specific to the virus. Because they have only a few genes compared to complex organism like us or even a bacteria, there are only a very few targets available. And things like the physical chemical properties of a viral particle, you can target that through basic hand hygiene. Washing your hands with soap will kill the viral particle very efficiently. But you can't do that inside your body. So the physical chemical targeting, the breaking the viral particles that way, really doesn't work as a drug treatment, only as a effectively a sterilization of surfaces or skin approach. So I think we could break down the ways that we could kill a virus in, into a few um, broad categories. We can stop the virus from recognizing our cells and getting in. We can stop the virus from replicating once it's inside the cell. We can stop the virus from getting out of the cell intact again. And then the other thing that we can do is to potentially modulate our own immune systems that make us at least less sick when we are infected by viruses. So there's four avenues, I imagine, around the world research is focusing on. Give us some context of other viral diseases. How have we tackled drugs against viruses in other situations other than COVID? Well, in recent years, there have been really very promising developments against a number of the the big um, human viruses. So HIV is one, hepatitis C is another, and in both of those areas we've seen really tremendous advances over the last couple of decades where we've seen a number of really quite effective drugs come onto the market and in some cases, in the case of hepatitis C, for the first time offering actually a radical cure. But there's a bunch of other viruses, some of which are really big world killers that we really don't have any drugs for against. So rotaviruses are one category that kill somewhere in the order of half a million children through diarrhea every year. And we don't have any treatment against rotaviruses whatsoever. Dengue is another one that kills an enormous number of people in tropical areas of the world. And again, we don't have any very good effective treatments, any good antivirals that really help us to combat dengue. So although there's been some progress over the last few decades, there are really enormous holes to fill when it comes to viruses where we don't have any treatment options. And if I can just add to Stuart's comments there, a lot of the viral diseases where we have good drugs are chronic infections, things like HIV or hepatitis C, where it's a slow, progressive disease. The virus is in you for a long, long time. Acute infections, things like the common cold and influenza, and in this case, SARS, so coronaviral infections, happen very quickly and either resolve very quickly, you get better, or in the case of the occasional patient, uh, you have horrible catastrophes and they get very, very sick indeed. But there's, it's easier to target these long, slow burn infections where there's plenty of time for your drugs to work against the virus than it is for these sudden rapid onslaught diseases, which hit you very quickly and then are gone. And often you don't show symptoms until it's too late for a, a drug to have a, a reasonable chance of success before the virus is either cleared or you're in serious uh, medical trouble. Wow. So that really clarifies why some viral diseases we've sort of got on top of and why we can't get on top of at the moment on others. So just enlighten me with the HIV and hepatitis C. At what point do the antiviral drugs work? Do they work at the getting in, replicating or getting out or the immune system? Where do those drugs have an effect? The ones that I'm familiar with um, stop viral replication and they can do that in a number of different ways. 
one of the things that the virus needs to be able to do is to copy its own genome, its uh, genetic instruction set. And so some uh, of these quite effective antivirals work by poisoning that replication system. And then the other way that some of those drugs work is that once those instructions are read into what's called a protein, in many cases, viruses have a tricky way of making one protein and then chopping it up into smaller parts. And those smaller parts of the proteins then fulfill different roles in the cell. And so they use what's called a protease, which is an enzyme that chops the protein up into smaller functional subunits. And some of the drugs that work against diseases like HIV or hepatitis C, which have been quite effective, work against those viral proteases. Okay, so we're in new territory with these fast replicating viruses. Is it a numbers game? Is that where the target needs to be? It's a question that's hard to answer at this point in time. So, for example, the common cold, that's that's sort of proverbial that there's no cure for the common cold. Common cold, the symptoms you get are caused by a large number of different viruses. So there's a family of viruses called the rhinoviruses, which cause about 70% of common colds. And then other diseases that have the same symptoms are caused by a virus called respiratory syncytial virus, caused by a family of coronaviruses, in fact. So curing the common cold is extremely difficult because it's not just one disease. There are drugs that will target the rhinoviruses. But the question there is the timing. By the time you're showing symptoms, treating the viral illness is almost pointless. You're getting better already. Now, what we don't know is how well you need to suppress the viral replication, the growth of virus inside a person to have a clinically significant improvement in their outcome. It may be that reducing the viral replication by 10% is enough to reduce hospitalization or reduce the chance of someone becoming extremely sick. Those sorts of things, particularly for coronavirus at the moment, we really have no feel for what level of viral suppression is needed to give you a useful medical outcome. We can't take antivirals as a preventative, can we? Well, we don't really know the answer to that question yet. Um, There are some circumstances where people do take antivirals as preventative, and, and HIV is one of those areas. Um, In the case of coronavirus and case of SARS-2 or COVID-19, we're not really sure whether or not you can take a preventative dose of drugs or what we call a a prophylactic dose. There's a big trial that's underway in Australia at the moment, which is being organised by the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute for Medical Research. And that's testing this quite controversial drug that Trump, amongst others, has advocated, hydroxychloroquine. There's probably pretty good evidence now coming in that hydroxychloroquine is not a very good treatment for coronavirus, but it may be, um, and the the trial will tell us, whether it could be um, used as a prophylaxis. The problem with any prophylactic drugs, drugs that you would take to avoid getting sick, is that all drugs have side effects. And so if you're going to give drugs to, let's say, your whole population to try and prevent them from becoming unwell, then there are going to be a number of unwanted adverse events from all of those otherwise well people taking drugs. Okay, so gentlemen, I put it to you then, why drugs and why not then the efforts into the vaccine or will it be a combination of both? Sorry, that's a double-barrel question, but I'm essentially saying why drugs then? I think that most of the diseases in the world that we are pretty good at handling are diseases where we have both options, where we prevent them where we can, but then once you do get infections, you've got an option for treatment. So we don't see this as an either-or option. We think that it would be great to have a vaccine and it would be great to have treatments as well for those people who do become unwell. The other thing is that it really doesn't look like we're going to be able to have a vaccine that is widely usable 
until at least the end of this year and, and maybe quite a lot later than that. So it would be good if we could find a drug that we know is safe to use in other circumstances and repurpose that drug for treating um, COVID-19. And in that case, we would at least have one option to minimise uh, death and illnesses until a vaccine becomes available. Yeah, so in the case of COVID-19, remdesivir and uh, dexamethasone have both been shown to have significant impacts on medical outcomes. So remdesivir is a, a drug that targets viral replication, wasn't designed for COVID-19, but appears to work on COVID-19. Dexamethasone is a, an immune system modulator that actually turns your immune system down slightly. And in the very sick patients, that seems to be a, a, a clinically extremely useful thing to do. So by repurposing existing drugs, you can rapidly get from having no possible treatment to having at least some way of mitigating the infection and uh, improving the outcome of patients. Whereas developing the vaccine is clearly going to take months to years from now. Can I get you both to comment on the complexities of drug design and even vaccines? I mean, it involves getting together with large pharmaceuticals and also you need money to develop drugs and vaccines. Give us a little bit of context on how you manage that. Now, Andy, you're right that there's significant costs involved. A lot of what we do at a university level is focused on the initial, does this compound have any chance of working against the virus? So we're looking at isolated enzymes or proteins that the virus makes, looking to see how they might interact with known drugs or new compounds that might be out there. But that's only the, a very early stage in the drug development process. Now, if you're able to find in this search for a, a compound that might work on the virus, a drug that's already approved for use in people, that's the ideal situation. That drug can then be tested quite quickly because we already know how it behaves in people, what doses can be tolerated, all those sorts of things. If you're starting from scratch saying, I need to find a brand new compound, traditionally it takes three to five years of lab research before you get to a point of understanding the chemistry of the potential drugs before you'd start testing them in people. And that process of testing in people takes normally five to 10 years and costs hundreds of millions of dollars. The clinical trial stage is very expensive and requires an enormous amount of investment. So that's where partnering with large pharmaceutical companies is almost inevitable. The ability to absorb those costs up front with a known chance of failure, not every drug that goes into clinical trials makes it to the market and makes money to pay back the costs to the investors, to the government who may have helped fund it. It's a very, very significant investment in time and expense to go from an idea of a drug against a particular virus to a, a tube of chemicals that can be given to a patient on the market. I would say the other side of that the kind of dirty secret of drug discovery is that because that drug discovery is so expensive, it really does mean that we these days only have very good drug discovery against diseases where it would be lucrative to treat that disease. And unfortunately, there are lots of infectious diseases and rotavirus that I mentioned before is one of those that really um, disproportionately affect the poorest people in the world. And that means that there's not much of a profit motive for developing drugs, including antivirals against those. And that really has meant that they've been neglected to a great extent over the last 30 years, which leaves us in a terrible place for treating some of these really awful uh, international diseases. I will point out that there are government organisations around the world that specifically fund these uh, less well-addressed diseases. 
purely because of the impact they have on the human population. So while, yes, the big pharmaceutical companies might not make it their priority to be working on those diseases, they will have programs in those areas that are funded by government organisations or non-government organisations that are raising funds to work specifically on poorly targeted tropical diseases, for example. Craig, can I ask you, what's changed in drug design since you've entered this industry? I think the biggest thing that's changed for me is the speed with which we can do things. So, for example, one of the viruses I worked on for many years is a virus called respiratory syncytial virus. It causes cold-like symptoms. Uh, It's probably the first disease almost every child gets. Most children have been infected with it before the age of two. In most children, it causes cold-like symptoms. They get better. And a lot of children, about 10%, however, they get quite a severe infection and require hospitalization. Now, I worked on that for 10, 11 years, that uh, particular virus. And we were guessing a lot of the time the details of what we were working on because we didn't have the detailed three-dimensional structures of the proteins that we need because the techniques, you know, 15, 20 years ago when I started working on it, weren't up to it. When SARS was identified towards the end of last year, SARS-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, within a few months, there were three-dimensional structures, these detailed, beautiful structures of the spike protein, of the proteases, of the replicating enzymes. The speed with which you can take the knowledge of what the, the genome of the virus is and generate a structural information that I need for my work has gone from being years and years of painstaking effort to a rapid turnaround with you know, one to two months from having the sequence to having structures. And that's made an enormous difference to what can be done and how it can be done. That's good to hear, actually. Stuart? I think something that's striking uh, about this pandemic is, even though it's a, a terrible, terrible pandemic, we're kind of lucky that it hit now rather than 30 years ago. A lot of the technologies that we now have in place mean that we can do things that we absolutely couldn't have imagined 30 years ago. The technologies that we have for diagnosis, for detecting the genome of the virus, or potentially in months to come, detecting the antibodies in humans that arise to the virus, the technologies behind those things have really come forward in in leaps and bounds. This other concept that we're hearing through the media of sequencing the genome of viruses in different people to be able to trace where the um, virus has been moving. That also would have seemed absolutely science fiction to us uh, even 10 years ago. So the fantastic advances we've had in, in the basic technologies like genome sequencing or expressing proteins or electron microscopy, some of these advances really mean that we are much better equipped for tracing, for diagnosis, for planning, for modelling, and then hopefully for coming up with better vaccines and for better drugs. Some of the technologies that are being discussed for making new vaccines include really quite um, science fiction things like making recombinant viruses by injecting RNA into people, synthesising new proteins. So these are approaches that are really reliant on modern molecular sciences, and we're lucky that we do now at least have approaches that we can use to to diagnose and trace and model these things and to treat them. I guess like most journalists, we're keen to ask, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Or can you see the end from where you're standing? I think the answer to that is that we, we are certainly not there yet. 
We really don't know whether any of the vaccines that are in the pipeline at the moment are going to provide adequate protection that we can roll them out as a way of solving this problem. In terms of drugs, we've got a couple of options now that give some degree of protection to people who are already very unwell, but we really don't have a magic bullet. What we'd really like is a drug that would come along that we could discover where anyone who had um, COVID-19 would take that drug and it would give them you know, at least a 90% chance um, of um, resolving those symptoms quicker. But that's not the case. The two drugs that are potentially being used in Australia, remdesivir and dexamethasone, they're drugs that give you a small, maybe 30% uh, protection either from death or from severe illness, depending on circumstances. But that's not really enough at all. That really still means that there'll be people getting very unwell, people dying, and people transmitting the virus. So we're not at a situation where we have the answer, where we have a drug that can really adequately deal with this problem. And so we need to keep on looking. Yes, I would agree with Stuart completely that at the moment, we know a lot more than we did six months ago, but we're not able to say when we'll have drugs that work, when we'll have a vaccine that is clinically effective. The latest data on some of the vaccines is very promising. They're showing a good safety profile, which means that they don't make the patients who've received the vaccine sick and showing that they are producing neutralizing antibodies in those, those patients, which is what you want a vaccine to do. But we've got no idea whether that neutralizing antibody level is sufficient to protect someone from coronavirus infection. With the drugs, we're working on it. As Stuart says, we've got ones that have been approved for treating very, very sick people to improve their chances of recovery. Drugs for the man in the street to make sure that they don't get sick, I think they're still a long way off. What would you like us to think about next time we're looking at a packet of drugs or hearing about drug design in the media? What is it that you'd like us to understand? I think people already have a pretty good understanding um, in, in some countries that there are differences between antiviral drugs and antibacterial drugs, which we often call antibiotics. So I think something that's important to remember is just how difficult it is to target viruses and how difficult it is to make drugs against viruses. The other thing that I think is worth remembering is how reliant we are on drugs to treat infectious diseases. And that's something that is being threatened at the moment in a number of areas, both in viruses, bacteria, and in parasites, where the infectious agents are becoming um, resistant to the drugs that we're using. So I think this is a really worrying development that's occurring in lots of areas, in agriculture as, as well as in medicine. And so think about the terrible state that we're in at the moment with no drug to treat COVID-19. Imagine if that were also the scenario for treating bacteria and parasites, what a dreadful state we'd be in. So it really does reinforce for us the absolute crucial role that anti-infective drugs play in society and the, the really important sort of worrying problem that we have of antimicrobial resistance, which is developing in a number of areas. That's probably a conversation for another day, but it's it's a sombering glimpse of, of a future world where we don't have good drugs to treat infectious diseases. Very true, Stuart. Craig? Well, I'd first reinforce Stuart's comments on uh, drug-resistant microbial pathogens. It's, it's a huge growing problem that needs further investment as we go forward. But the other thing I think people need to consider when they look at the packet of pills is the amount of effort and work that's gone into producing those pills. There is lots of discussion about how 
drug companies are evil money-making creatures who squeeze us all for cash. The research and development that goes into coming up with a new drug is very, very expensive, hundreds of millions of dollars. That money has to come from somewhere. The pharmaceutical companies spend the vast majority of that development cost from money they raise themselves. A lot of it comes from government as well, but the majority comes from the pharmaceutical companies. The companies aren't evil monsters. They're doing their best to come up with products that are safe and effective for human use. So I think take a slightly friendlier view of drug companies when you realize that we are reliant on a lot of the, the produce that comes from these companies, uh, as Stuart said, in all different aspects of uh, health within our society. Dr. Craig Morton and Associate Professor Stuart Ralph, thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Andy. Thank you very much, Andy, for your time. Thank you to Associate Professor Stuart Ralph, Acting Head of the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology in the School of Biomedical Sciences, and Dr Craig Morton, Departmental Senior Research Fellow based at the Bio21 Molecular Science and Biotechnology Institute, both at the University of Melbourne. And thanks to our reporter, Dr Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on July 21, 2020. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Production, audio engineering and editing by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2020, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, review us on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.